Okay, so this is a really important subject. In fact, you could say this is the most important subject of all. And it's one you might not have given a lot of thought to before, and it's the subject of Jesus Christ. Who is this guy? I could say this is probably the single most important subject, uh, because if you understand who Jesus Christ is, pretty much everything else that I say will fall into place. If you don't understand who Jesus Christ is, uh, it'll, it'll really never make sense. Okay? Um, uh, and the most important thing to understand, and I'll say this multiple times, the simplest thing to understand is say, who's Jesus Christ? I'll ask that of, I'll ask that of say, somebody in my um, religious education classes. Or I'll ask that of a grade school student. And people say, well, I, I'd say he's the Messiah. I'll say, yes. I say, oh, he's, he's the son of God? I say, yes. Um, is anything else? Uh, he's, he's a really great guy. I say, yes. Um, but they don't grasp the central fact. And it's really simple. Jesus Christ is God come down to earth. That's who he is. I could ask that question of, I'd, I'd say probably four out of five Catholics, they, maybe, maybe three, out, three out of four don't know that. They don't know that. They think, He's a great religious leader, he's a great prophet, he's a great teacher. But God from God, light from light, true God from true God, um, they don't necessarily grasp it. Okay, And here's how I want to try to help you to understand this here. Okay, That he's not just one prophet among many. Here's the question. If you died tonight, heaven forbid, but let's just pretend. right? And God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer is on your notes, of course, but... If you didn't have your notes, and I said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? God says, you give me the right answer, you can come in. Now, I've asked this question to many, many people. And you know what their answer always is? It's always some I-centered statement. They'll say, "Why should? because I'm a really good person, I've tried really hard, uh, I... Uh, uh, I, 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 I pay my taxes, uh, I tell the truth, I, 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 and I. You know what the problem is with an I-centered statement when the question is, why should I let you into heaven? If it's anything that's just about you, then you don't need a savior. You're your own savior. You were really good, and as a consequence, you deserve heaven. Like, like God's got a bargain, and you held up your half of the bargain. And so when, if you believe that in your heart of hearts... And then I turn to you and say, Jesus Christ is the Savior. It doesn't click because you think you're your own Savior. And you're your own forgiver of your own sins. And you've earned heaven. Now, we'll get to this point later uh, as we go along this evening. But that doesn't make sense. Okay? That isn't true and can't be true. Uh, there's a lot of people who believe. And, uh, you know, if you, if you talk about Islam, Islam effectively believes in a holy bargain. The bargain being, if you do your part, follow the right rules, uh, you get paradise when it's all over. That's the deal. There isn't a savior in Islam. There's just instruction. You follow the instructions on the box, you know, like the doctor prescribed, and you'll get what was promised. Well, we don't believe that, okay? We got lots of instruction, but that doesn't make us our own, that doesn't make, that doesn't make us our own savior. So, and this really sets us apart from every faith in the world. We believe Jesus is God. So, I was playing frisbee on the fraternity lawn in college, long before I studied any of this stuff. And a friend of mine says to me, we're throwing the frisbee, he says, where were you? And I said, well, I was in church. I just got back from church. And he goes, well, um, 
I said, well, why do you go to church? Well, I said, I'm Catholic. And he says, well, you know, I, I don't really know what to believe. You Catholics, you say that Jesus is God. But, you know, the Muslims, they think Muhammad, they think Muhammad is God. And the Buddhists, they think Buddha is God. So, you know, who's to say you're right? And I didn't know at the time that Muhammad, the Muslims do not think Muhammad is God. We know this now, right? Because we've had so much instruction in Islam since, two, since 2001. But back in the day, in the 90s, when I was in college, uh, I thought, oh, that's a pretty good point. But, you know, Muslims say Muhammad is God, and we say Jesus is God. And the Buddhists say, Does the, do the Buddhists think that Buddha is God? No, they don't even have a concept of God at all. We, we don't want to get too far afield with comparative religion. But there's one religion in the entire world that said that God walked the earth. And we're the only one that says that. We're the only ones that say that. Which is a pretty neat idea. What and we'll get, into, we'll get into why. Um, actually, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to request right. that you hold questions until the end, okay? Oh, that, that's the only way we're going to make it through here, okay? So let's take a look at this right here, okay? Let's take a look. The second greatest mystery in our faith. The second, people always say, well, I thought that was the greatest mystery in your faith. It's actually not. The greatest mystery in our faith is the Holy Trinity. And I used to have a class on the Holy Trinity here in my RCIA. I used to have an entire class on the Holy Trinity, but I stopped teaching it. The reason why I stopped teaching it was because there's so much dry instruction before it becomes cool that I think I, I felt like I lost most people. It's the, I think it's the most interesting subject in the entire world, the Trinity. But boy, there's a lot of dryness before it becomes interesting. So I just stopped it. So let me take, you, take my word for it. It's really interesting, but it's hard, to, it's hard to arrive at the interesting. But the second most important subject is that God became a man. So let's look at, uh, you know, just historically speaking, was Jesus a man? Yes. He was, a, he was a regular dude, okay? And he was born at a specific moment in time. And he was born in Bethlehem in the time of King Herod and the Emperor Caesar Augustus. And he, he grew up in Nazareth in northern Israel. And I don't want to impugn anyone's ancestry here in any way. However, I could say that Nazareth compares in that time, like to say West Virginia today, it wasn't the most glamorous place to be from. If Jesus were Still around today, and it's, it, it's exactly, if Jesus were around today, uh, you know, he'd be from uh, Ashtabular, Ohio, maybe, the hills of Kentucky, someplace that wouldn't make you think twice. Okay? And that's why, you know, like in the scriptures, you'll hear people say, we found, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah. And like, you have, you have. Yeah, Jesus from Nazareth. And they said, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was their response. So, but this is, where, this is where, as part of the deal, by the way. I tell you, I don't want to get too far afield on this, but it's the most fascinating thing. When God wants to do work, he uses almost no human props. Like, you'll find, like, amazing saints um, that had, like, no education. Or like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, they came from Albania, right? I mean, why didn't she come from Paris? Why couldn't she have been five foot eight blonde cover girl model from Paris? Because God doesn't want any of that stuff. Because He wants you to know that it's Him at work, right? Not any, not anything that's any human. It's difficult to be Catholic in Albania. It's a Muslim country. But, but, um, but, and he was a carpenter. How do we know he was a carpenter? Because if you remember what I said from past weeks. If you weren't a rabbi, they said, son, go ply your father's trade. And they very clearly tell you that his father, Joseph, was a tecton. That's the Greek word, tecton. never says carpenter. A tecton is kind of like a general handyman. He definitely would have made tables and chairs, but he probably also repaired roofs and 
a, a, a tecton, a kind of a, a all kind of handy. If he was around today, he'd probably be an electrician. Okay. Uh, he was crucified. The worst kind of death they could possibly give you, the kind of death invented by the Assyrians to terrorize their enemies. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They stole it. It was the most, when they expanded their empire, and they went into what's now Syria, they discovered this form of execution that was so horrible. They were like, they were like this is the way you frighten your enemies. You do this to them. We're going to learn something from these Assyrians. And it was so awful they wouldn't crucify Roman citizens. But that's a separate subject. Um, now, here we, we start to say some pretty strange things about Jesus, things that really don't mesh with our modern society. We say he was born of a virgin, and we hold to that. He had no human father. There was a real conception, but it was a miracle. I haven't the slightest idea how it happened. But by the power of God, without any human father whatsoever, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, that existed from all time, took on human nature and was born. And he was given a name. And his name was Yeshua. God saves. They didn't name him Joseph. They didn't name him after any of his cousins. They named him something. The name that the angel told him, God saves. And by the way, Christ was not his last name. You know, it's not like you're going to walk through ancient Nazareth and there's a mailbox. And the mailbox says, home of the Christs, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Right? That's not a last name. Last names, by the way, they're somewhat of a modern invention. Do you know that? Last names, surnames, they're about three, 400 years old. But if you could go back in time, they'd say, who are you? I'd say, I'm Joseph. Where are you from? Fredericksburg. That's Joseph from Fredericksburg. Joseph, what do you do? Uh, I'm a carpenter. They say, well, that's Joseph Carpenter. But last names, they're somewhat of a modern invention. Christ means the anointed one. They would have called him Yeshua ben Joseph or Yeshua bar Joseph or Yeshua Nitzaret, Jesus of Nazareth. Ben is... Aramaic, bar is Hebrew, just means son of. Um, Christ, the word means anointed one. Now, every king was anointed a king. And they would have called him the anointed. Anointed in Greek means Christ. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach or Messiah. Would they have called David the Messiah? They would have because it just means anointed. Everyone, it wouldn't have been called a the Messiah like the one we're waiting for. All of Israel is waiting for a promised one an anointed one, a king among kings. But every king would have been called a Christ. Every king would have been called a Messiah, a Mashiach. That's just the word means. Um, and, and they were anointed and they were consecrated by God and they were given a mission. You're going to rule my people Israel. It's just that the, the Messiah was going to be given the greatest mission of all, the salvation and the redemption of the people. Okay? Now here's an interesting thing you can say about Jesus. We know almost nothing about 30 years of his life. 30 years of his life. How long did Jesus live? 33. 33. How do we know he lived to be 33? Actually, because you told me. You didn't tell me, but the church did. Here's how we know. We know that he was a rabbi because he walked about saying, come follow me, come follow me, like I said last week. We know that rabbis begin their ministry at age 30. We know that he lived three years. How do we know that he lived three years? There's only one gospel that tells us that he lived three years. It's the Gospel of John. It goes through three and only three Passovers, and on the third one he was killed. That's how we know he lived to be 33. Okay? Um, so, he lived to be, so he lived to be 33, but 30 of those years were hidden. Now think about that for a moment. God comes down to earth, and we've waited for all eternity for this. Then he spends 11, 10 out of his 11 years of those 30 hidden. Working in a carpenter shop, doing what his mom said. Think there's a lesson in that? 
It's a big lesson in that. God loves ordinary stuff. What is most of life made out of? Ordinary stuff. God loves ordinary. He loves, he, he makes lots of blades of grass, right? Ordinary is where, and I often said, if you can't find God in the ordinary, you'll never find him because that's where he is. 10 out of his 11 years were ordinary. And there's only one thing we know about <clears throat> those early years. Anybody know the story? It's 12, and he was 12, 12 years old. Then he's teaching because it says that he was 12. Right. Yeah. But he's, so he's teaching, he's 12 years old. You ever hear any other stories of Jesus from when he was little? No. And if you ever do, I want you to understand they're not Christian scriptures. There are some non-Christian, I don't want to get too far afield here. There's non-Christian scriptures that will tell stories of things Jesus did, and they're weird. You'll hear them and you'll be like, there's no way that's Jesus. Like, here's an example. No joke, he's on the playground. Or the equivalent of the ancient playground as a school child. And he gets in a fight with a kid. And he gets angry with him and he shrivels up his arm. <laughs> no joke, it's one of these ancient stories. He, he draws a bird in the sand. He blows in the, in the sand. The bird becomes real and flies away. But that, that, these, are, these, are, these are, I don't want to get too far afield. Those are not from Christian scriptures. That Gnosticism? That's Gnosticism, yeah. Um, so, uh, so Joseph, Joseph's father dies when he's young. How do we know that Joseph died when Jesus was young? Because he's never mentioned past the age of 12. You hear about Mary, 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 but never Joseph. His brothers and sisters are mentioned. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but, so he lives three years of public life. He gathers 12 followers, preaches the kingdom of God, attracts large audiences, really does work miracles. Real miracles. And by the way, I can, get, I can explain to you what a miracle is, and we'll talk about it more when we talk about saints. But a miracle is something for which there's absolutely no physical explanation whatsoever. It's permanent and it's irreversible. So a miracle isn't like a gradual healing that takes place over a course of three years. That's not a, you know, there could be a natural explanation for that. A miracle isn't something where there's like a healing, but you know, like you get sick again in two weeks. That's not a miracle. It's instant, it's unexplainable, and it's permanent, right? And these are, these are his credentials. And we say he really worked miracles. He was sentenced to death for claiming to be God. Now, only the Romans could sentence somebody to death. But it was the Jewish authorities that pushed for it. And if anybody ever says Jesus never claimed to be God, the simplest rebuttal to that is he was sentenced to death for blasphemy. They must have, he must have made that claim at some point because they killed him for it, right? Um, and he dies on a cross and he makes the boldest claim ever. He says, I'm coming back. Now this is the ultimate proof of everything that he said and the ultimate proof of his divinity who's the only master of life and death you got to be God. Nobody else. You've heard these stories about Babe Ruth. They say that Babe Ruth would be standing in Yankee Stadium. I don't know if this is true or not. And before the pitcher would throw the ball, not only would he say that he would nail a home run, but he'd point to the, where in the stands where he was going to do it. And then he'd do it. <laughs> Here's Jesus, and he's like hitting the ultimate home run. He says, you can kill me, but in three days I'll be back. And on the third day he came back. The ultimate proof of everything that he said. Now, then he appears to his apostles for 40 days, and he's different. Something really different about him. And he does strange things like walk through walls. And he's not with them all the time, and he says cryptic things, and he vanishes. His, his, and people who knew him didn't recognize him. There's something different about him. Okay? And then he ascends into heaven. And we already talked about this, and he establishes the church. Now, um, to understand the meaning of all this, we have to turn to the Gospels. Now, the Gospels are somewhat difficult to understand. They're not written like modern 
literature is written. They're brief, they're dense, and they're packed with meaning. They're not a narrative and they're not intended to be a narrative. It's not like, you know, Jesus woke up one day and he had a cup of coffee and he heard a clamor outside his door. So he walked outside his door, there's a hundred people standing outside his door. So, you know, he quickly got dressed and came out and started talking to the crowds. And then he got hungry and he got some lunch, but, you know, he got interrupted by the leper. Who, it doesn't go like that, okay? It's not a narrative story. There's another difficulty for understanding the Gospels. And quite frankly, it's because you feel like you've heard them a million times. I mean, do I have to really tell you the Christmas story? One of the hardest things in the world as a priest is to preach Christmas. Because everybody's heard it before. What are you supposed to say? There's nobody who hasn't heard the story before. You guys know about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do you know what the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was supposed to be in C.S. Lewis's mind? The story of Christianity retold so that people could hear it as though for the first time. He's going to have Christ, but it's going to be a lion who talks. And he's going to have a Judas, and he's going to have sin, and he's going to have a world dominated by sin. But he's going to change it up so that instead of sin, it's winter. And instead of redemption, it becomes spring. And, but it's the story of, so when you hear it, you're like, wow, that's the most amazing story I've ever heard. It's vaguely familiar somehow, but I'm not sure how. That's why he wrote it, because people become jaded. They've heard this a million times. There's another reason why people don't understand it. They have a, they have a, a superficial image of who Jesus is. Now, most people, practically speaking, if I said, who did, what's Jesus like? Like, well, he was an exceedingly nice guy, pretty much a big hippie, and he was picking daisies and patting little children on the head. Just a really nice guy. You might not say that, but that's what most people think that he is. But you look through the scriptures and you find a very different guy. My favorite story in the scriptures, when he, when he cleansed the temple, you know the story of Jesus knocking over tables in the temple? My favorite detail of that is that he wove a bullwhip out of cords. Now, how long does it take a, to weave a bullwhip? He, he thought about this for a long time before he did it. He, he put that bullwhip together, and a bullwhip is a long thing. And then he was like, ha ha, ready. And away he went. And, you know, he insulted people, and, and people got upset at him. And people said, Jesus, you know, you're saying some really insulting things. You know, you're, it's like, Jesus, it's like you, the way you talk to the Pharisees, you're, you're insulting us too. And he goes, well, woe to you too, for that matter. You know, um, it, it'll be easier on the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you on the judgment. I mean, there's a reason why he got crucified. And it wasn't because he made everybody happy. So the real Jesus, and by the way, you want to keep this in mind. We say that everything Jesus did, he did deliberately. He acted in an absolute sovereign manner without any concern for what anybody thought. He did, he did things for one thing and one reason only, because the Father wanted him to, because it was good and true. And he's the very definition of love. And sometimes people will be like, well, you know, I can't say that that's not loving. And what they mean to say is that's not nice. And nice and loving are often very different things, you know. You know, the word nice comes from two Latin words, ne shire. You know what it means literally? To not know anything. So nice and is like a synonym for ignorant. I'll pretend like nothing's wrong and I'll just look the other way and that's nice, but it's not loving. Love means doing what's best for somebody and it's very often not nice. So you're going to find Jesus doing always being loving, but not always being nice, okay? Um, and he did astonishing things like amend the Ten Commandments. As of old it was said to you, thou shalt not kill, but what I say to you is, now imagine if somebody said, you know, the Constitution of the United States it says you, you, you have the right to free assembly, but I, I say to you otherwise. You'd be like, well, who are you? 
you can't tell me otherwise. The Constitution is the Constitution, right? Where do you, where do you get off telling me that isn't the, the law? Well, here's Jesus. He's amending the greatest law of all, the law of Moses. I say to you, whoever looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. And you see, he's already hinting that he's God right there. And there's another one this was in the scriptures just a couple of weeks ago. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And Jesus says, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your... I preached on that a couple of weeks ago. And he, and he goes about amending things. He'd have to be God to amend it. And he wouldn't tell people immediately who he was. He gradually told them that he was God because he couldn't tell them straight up, hey, everybody, I'm God. He couldn't tell them that. But he did gradually tell them. And in the very end, before he was put to death, they asked him, are you the son of the blessed one? And he said, answering in the divine first person, I am. Remember what Moses asked God when he saw God in the burning bush, what's your name? And God said, my name is I am. And so Jesus said before the night before he died, I am. And you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. But until that moment, he liked people to guess. And he did strange things like he calmed the storm on the sea. And the boat was going down because of a storm on the sea. And they said, Jesus, we're going down, we're going down. As if to say, grab a life preserver and save yourself. We're going down. And he gets up on the edge of the boat and he talks to the weather. Now, who does that? He says, be still. And lo and behold, it's, it's still. And the apostles turn to each other and they say, who is this guy? Is this God? Or is this man? They never imagined that he was both. And that's the most important point about Jesus. This is the most important question we've got to answer here. The incarnation means this. It means Jesus is both God and man. To become incarnate means to take flesh. And we say is the second greatest mystery of our faith is that God took flesh. Now, this is very hard for our minds to grasp, as I'll flesh out in just a second here. Very hard for our minds to grasp. No pun intended. No pun intended, okay? Um, there are people who deny that he's God. They say he's the greatest of all people. Really great guy. And this is very common in our own time. There are a group of people in history that believe that, and they were called Aryans. Not Aryan with a Y. That's Hitler's Aryans. Not the same. This is Aryan with an I, following a priest named Arius very famous guy, intellectual from, from Egypt, who said that Jesus was not God, but he was just a really great guy. And don't most people in our society, that's what they basically think. He's a great guy. He's a really great guy. Too bad Christians aren't more Christ-like, right? He's a really great guy. There's others who say, you know, he was really God. He was an exalted being. They denied that he was even human. And believe it or not, you'll even hear this today. Like, if you could ask a, a Buddhist what's Jesus? They'd probably say he's a bodhisattva, an exalted, an exalted being. He wasn't really a man. Uh, and, and the people will say that. But the hardest thing for people to understand is that he's actually God and actually a man. And let's give that more attention, okay? His humanity was not just an illusion. He's not half and half. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. And let's try to explain what that means. And this might seem kind of dry, but once you've got this, you've got something really important that you can work with and you can really take this and, and live by this. So let's try to understand this, okay? He's one person and he has two natures, okay? A person is an answer to the question, who are you? A nature is an answer to the question, what are you? 
Who are you? I'm a man. Who are you? I'm a woman. Who are you? I'm a boy. Who are you? I'm a girl. Okay? Nature, what are you? I'm a human being. I'm not a dog. I'm not a cat. I'm not a bird. I'm a human being. Jesus was one person who had two natures. Now, this is where it gets kind of screwball-y, okay? The one person that Jesus was was a divine person. Who are you? If I could ask him, and Jesus was standing right here helping me teach RCIA, he'd say, I'm the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And this is very important. That means he is not a human person. Say that to yourself. Jesus Christ was not a human person. He was a human being, which we'll get to in a second. But was Jesus the second person of the Blessed Trinity? Yes. Now, if he's the second person of the Blessed Trinity, and he's also a human person, then he's two people. Is Jesus Christ two people? He's Yes or no? Please say no. He's not two people. If he's two people, then he's got schizophrenia. Right? Uh, he's one person. Now, he's got a human nature. Okay, so... What are you? He could say, I'm a man. Who are you? Uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Who are you? The second person of the Blessed Trinity. What are you? I'm a man. And if you really pressed him, he could say, what are you? I'm also God. He had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, okay? But um, if, you, if you think Jesus is a human person, then he's not the Messiah, which we'll get to in a second. He's not the Savior, which we'll get to in a second. Okay? But when he says, I... The I that speaks is God. When he acts, God acts. When he doesn't act, God doesn't act. Okay? This is what we mean when we say the incarnation. Both God and man. If you're into technical terms, this is called the hypostatic union. Jesus could give two answers to the question, what are you? I'm God, I'm man. He'd only give one answer to the question, who are you? Right? He's God who could read people's hearts. He's God who could work miracles. He's God who could raise the dead. But he's also man. He was born of a real mother. He really learned to eat and drink and, and suffer and die. But whatever, it, whatever he did, the human, the human uh, nature that was acting was always one divine person who did it. Okay? Um, and this tells us a lot of stuff. It tells us why his death on the cross matters, which I'll get to in just a second. It tells us that everything that he does matters because he gives us a perfect example of who God is. You can never, as a Christian, not know who God is because all you have to do is look at who Jesus is. Jesus is God who became a man, which, by the way, is why we canonize saints because it gives us even more examples of what it means to be like Christ. He's the perfect example of who we're supposed to be, which is, again, why we canonize saints. It gives us even more examples, more facets. It's like looking at Jesus. It's almost like trying to look straight into the sun. It's too much to take in. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's too much to take in. It's part of the reason why we canonize saints. Um, But it also tells us that everything that he did is something that God did. So God learned how to walk. God learned how to talk. God knew what a hard day's work was. God knew what it meant to be betrayed. God knew what it meant to be homeless. God knew what it meant to be a refugee because Jesus went through all this stuff. Okay, a couple of ways to understand this, a couple of tools. First of all, it's a true statement to say God was born. If I asked you apart from this explanation, if you could believe that God was born, you might have a hard time saying yes. You say, well, God can't be born. He's always existed. Well, yes, but what is birth? 
well, it's a it's a process. It's a it's going from one location to the next. You're going from the womb through the birth canal out into the wide, wide world. Did did Jesus do that? Yes, he did. The question is, does does a um, a mother give birth to a person, or does a mother give birth to a nature? Well, well both, right? But who's the person who experienced birth? Second person of the Blessed Trinity. Was God born? Yes or no? Yeah. Okay. The other one is even harder to understand. God died. Now, if I asked you before the explanation, can God die? You'd say, no, God's eternal. You can't kill God. We'll get to this in a future lecture, but what is death? Death is a separation of the soul from the body. That's all it is. That's all it is. When your soul is separated from your body, we call that death. Now, when I do that to a hamster, the hamster, I'm sorry to say, the little hamster is gone forever. But when I do that to you, are you gone forever? No, your soul lives on. So death is not annihilation. It's not the end of your existence. I could say death is the most important event of your whole life because it's your biggest change of address. You still, you're, The real you keeps on plugging. It's just that you are no longer bound to a body. That's death. Okay? Did, God, did that happen to God? Yes. Who died on the cross? Jesus. And Jesus was how many people? One, one person. person. Please. Two people, schizophrenia. One person, sanity. One person. Jesus was one person. That one person, was it a human person or a divine person? Divine, divine person, right? The divine person experienced separation of soul and body, right? And this is very, very important. Um, because when I, when I talk about the Redeemer, which I'll talk about in just a second, this is why it matters. This is why Jesus is set apart from everybody else who ever lived. Nobody else was like this. A couple of little things for you. He had two intellects. I have no idea what that's like, but he had a divine intellect and a human intellect. Why do we say that? Because he had... And by the way, the reason where... i tell you where I get all this stuff. Years and years and years and years of church councils that hammered it all out okay and again this gets back to why i followed this class this week on last class last week if you don't have a foundation of why the church is to be trusted you can take everything i'm saying and throw it out and throw throw out any reason for believing anything by the way because this stuff is time tested okay but he had two intellects because he had two natures he had a divine knowing and a human knowing so it says that he he grew in wisdom and knowledge. I mean, he learned how to walk and he learned how to talk. But as God, uh, he always was, so somehow he, I have no idea what this is like to experience, um, but you'll hear a, a scripture this Sunday. Uh, please God, draw a church this Sunday and you hear the scripture this Sunday. Uh, and it says that the, the Son of Man, only the Father knows when the end will come. Not the angels and not, and not, and not the Son either. Is he talking about his human nature there or his divine nature? He's talking about his human nature because he's in divine nature. He's omniscience. He knows everything. In his human nature, like if he asked, I have no idea what that's like, but there were two intellects. That's the only way to describe some of this. There were also two wills. Who's heard of the Garden of Gethsemane? Who's never heard of the Garden of Gethsemane? Garden of Gethsemane, night before Jesus died, he sweats blood, which, by the way, is a real phenomenon when you can really be stressed. You can break capillaries and sweat blood. And he prays a very strange prayer. He says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but yours be done. 
how can anybody say that unless he's got a human will and a divine will? And this shows us, by the way, that everything that he did, his human will was united with his divine will. He always did the divine will. Which is, leads to this next point. The biggest difference between Jesus and us is Jesus never sinned. And by sin, I mean he didn't break the divine will ever. He never broke. Every time he united his human will to his divine will, the human will always did the divine will. He never broke the human from the divine. And this tells us a lot about sin. Sin is not just part of being human. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, I'm only human. I'm only human, so, you know, I had an affair with a lady. Well, actually, there's nothing human about that. That's actually a lack of humanity. That's the way we would see it. I'm only human, I told a lie. We'd say there's actually nothing human about that. That's a lack of humanity. I'm only human, you know, I had to kill my enemy. Well, stop. That's not human. That's inhuman, right? That's inhumane. And that's what we say. Sin is not part of being human. It's a misuse of your humanity. The more you do God's will, the more you become a creature of God's image. And a very frightening thought is the more you sin, the more you become a creature of your own making. So you want to look at a monster in history like Hitler, Stalin, this kind of thing, Pol Pot, mass murderers. How'd they get that way? One bad choice at a time. That's how they got that way. But did, sometimes people, they don't necessarily know this background. They say, well, why did God create Hitler? Well, would you be surprised to learn that when God created him, he actually had really good plans for him. And he gave him a free will. Did he use that free will well? No, he did not. That's how... Maybe but, in World War I. Maybe in World War I, okay? But we're not going to... But down the pike, the you misuse your free will, and you misuse your free will, and you misuse your free will... And you actually become, you become a corrupted being. You know that? Let me just, I, I can jump ahead to a moral, to a moral class. And in a couple weeks we're going to talk about morality. And if you tell a lie, and then you tell another lie, and then you tell another lie, such to the point that you can't help but tell lies, it's such a habit for you, do you know what you've become? A liar. I have to call you what you are. You're a liar. It's actually your being. You've become corrupted. Now, you can get fixed. You have to start telling the truth. You can heal yours. You can get healed. But it actually becomes who you are. So sin becomes a deformation of what a human being is made to be. And that's very important. Because people will say, well, why did God make all these evil people? He didn't. He gave them free will. They made bad choices on their own. But this is what really becomes important when we talk about the redemption. There's a fork in the road, so to speak. Do you believe this about Jesus or don't you? That's why Jesus said to his apostles, who do you say that I am? Okay. Now, I've made some statements ultimately, and if I, if I were on CNN, if I were on television, and I had to defend these statements, they'd get me in a lot of trouble. Because I made ab- all these statements I've made are absolute truth claims. And the trouble with an absolute truth claim is that it says that anybody who says the contrary is actually an error. I had a woman once say to me, well, Jesus is God for you, but he's not God for me. You can't say that as an irrational statement. If he's God, he's God. And if he's not God for you, then you're actually not in touch with what's real. I mean, suppose somebody came up to me and they said, uh, you know, it's 2018 for you, but for me it's 1941. I'd say, uh, get thee to a psych, right? Because that's not in touch with reality. And I made some statements. 
he's either God or he's not God. And that C.S. Lewis once famously said, there's three options. He's either, he's either crazy or he's evil or he's who he says that he is. Because you can't say I'm God and get that one wrong. You can't say I'm God and get that one wrong. Okay? So we do make this claim that he is. And that's the most important claim I want to make this evening. Now let's talk a little bit about why it saves us from sin. Okay? Um, so this has been very, very clear that Jesus would be a savior. And then when he came into this world, he came to save us from sin. And the second thing, he came to give us life. Now let's talk about these two things. If I ask most people, say, who is Jesus? They say, well, Jesus, he came to save us from our sin. If that's all you understand about Jesus, it's very understandable as to why you might not necessarily think too much about him or think anything of him. Because if all he is is a great big divine eraser who comes and erases all your mistakes, then, you know, thank goodness there's an eraser, and thank goodness there's a heaven, and thank goodness Jesus is the eraser. But you can't, have, you can't necessarily love, honor, revere, and worship what's no more to you than a great big eraser. Okay? But let's start with the eraser part of it. Let's start about why Jesus is the Savior. Here's a fair question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Save us from our sins. Now, if you press that question further, people will ask this question. Why does some guy 2,000 years ago on a cross being executed as part of the Roman criminal justice system, how does that get me into heaven? I don't get it. It's a very fair question. Very fair question. And, and what, what do I have to do about that? What do I have to just have kind of like the right feelings about that? The right ideas about that? And then like I kind of like got the magic past that gets me into heaven. Let's talk about why this matters, okay? Let's talk about an offense. Let's talk about sin. What is sin? Sin is an offense. Now here's an important point. An offense is measured in one of two ways. Not only what's done, but also who it's done to. Now obviously I don't have to explain this to you. What's done is a measure of an offense, right? If I steal $5 from you, it's less than if I steal 500 if I trip you and laugh, it's far, far less of an offense than if I place a bomb in your car and it blows up. There are different, but there's another way to judge offenses, and that is who's offended. Think about this for a moment. If I have a pie, right, and I make to smack you in the face with a pie, we can get over it. There is a future for us, right? We can move on. You want to know why? There better be darn good explanation. I don't really think that's funny. But it's not the end of the world. Now, if I take that same pie and I make to smack the bishop in the face with a pie, have I done the same thing? I really haven't done the same thing, have I? But it's the same action. It's a pie in the face. Now, if I make to smack the president of the United States in the face with a pie, the late night talk show hosts think it's the greatest thing ever. I'm all over the news. I, make, I go down in history, but I'm learning about it from the depths of my cell in a supermax prison somewhere in Colorado because it's not just a pie in the face anymore, is it? Why? Because of the one who was offended. Now, here's the, the idea I ask you to get your minds around. Sin is an infinite offense because of the one who's offended. I ask you to try to get your minds around this. You can never overcome an infinite offense, ever. Not in 10 million zillion eternities. Because you're finite. The difference between God and man that's been caused by sin 
cannot ever be overcome by a finite man. However, good news, I got news for you. There is one man who's not finite. He's infinite. That's why he's the savior. Now here's an interesting question. Did he have to die on a cross? The answer is no. This is a bad joke. He could have he could have saved us by drawing a single breath in obedience to the Father's will. His infinity of obedience to the Father's will with united human nature would have been the reunion of humanity and divinity. Say, well, why did he die on the cross? Lots of reasons why. To show us the depth of his love is a reason why. To show us just how bad sin is is a reason why. To show us that he took all these depths of our human misery onto himself is a reason why. Lots of reasons why. But did he have to? Didn't have to. He chose to, but he didn't have to. Okay. And this gets us into, this is why Jesus is the one savior. And this is why I said, if you misunderstand that he's God, or if you misunderstand that he's a divine person, Ultimately, you have to logically conclude he's not the savior. The cross doesn't matter. He's one more man among many. <coughs> Take it or leave it. That's why this is so important to class. Okay? That's why understanding this is so important. But that's not all it is. Because if that's all it is, it's really hard to build a religion around a divine eraser. Okay? Because he did more than that. He came to buy back what was lost. To give life. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Now, if I say that to most people, they don't think of God as giving us life and giving us life to the full. Most people think of God as cramping their style, getting in the way of their fun. Pesky rules. I don't ask you to believe me. I ask you to believe Jesus himself. When he says, trust me, I'm telling you this stuff for your own good. You want to be happy? Listen to what I say. You want to be really happy? Listen closely to what I say. He came to give us, to reunite what was lost. Now, this is in three steps, according to St. Paul. Redeeming, reconciling, and justifying. Okay? Redeeming, it's, long story short, it's what I've already said. Um, redeeming is, the, the, is, is, is buying us back, bringing together what was lost. Um, like I said, even if you didn't know about Adam and Eve or sin, you could open up the newspaper and say, something's wrong with this world. Something's broken. And then I say, well, in the person of Jesus, what's broken has been fixed. That's what we say. Okay? Um, but we say he did more than that. He did two other things. He reconciled and he justified. Now here's reconciling. Reconciling is, is reestablishing a relationship. Now imagine if you had a, uh, I don't know, um, a terrible breakup. And um, it was possible after that to restore the relationship the way it used to be. That's what we would say Jesus did when he reconciled us. Before there was ever a sin, you go back to the story of Adam and Eve, and I don't need to get into the historicity of it, just let's just go back to the moral points that it makes, okay? Before there was ever a sin, God and man were in friendship, not an adversarial relationship. He, 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 he brought that back again. He brought back the friendship. Like the, like the uh, prodigal son story. You know, the prodigal, he goes off and he spends his father's inheritance at Vegas. And then he comes back when he's all over. And, and the father, he reestablishes him in his sonship once again. And he, like it never happened. But I want to tell you something even more mystical than that. Jesus takes it a step further. 
And this is he justifies. Now this is really kind of mystical. People don't often hear about this. It's not often proclaimed from pulpits. It's actually hard to get your mind around. But what you really want to know what Jesus did, he made it possible for us to share his own life. It's like, I know this sounds strange, but the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, describes the end of all things, there's going to be a great big marriage. And the marriage is between God and his people. I have no idea what that's like. But I can ask you this. Is a marriage not between equals? It's a marriage is between equals. Somehow, you know, it's like the Cinderella story. Cinderella was not a royal. She was made a royal. She was raised up to royalty. And then she married the prince. Somehow, because of what Jesus did, you're going to be raised up to what, to what God is. Now, the devil back in the, in, the, in the Adam and Eve story says, eat this forbidden fruit and you'll become like God. He had no idea that in God's grand plan, God had every intention of making you like God too. That was the plan. And he does. And why is this the case? Because Jesus was a human nature and a divine nature. How many persons was Jesus? How many natures was Jesus? Okay, nature is, what are you? Okay, So you're a human being. You can do things human beings can do. You can't do things that birds can do, because you don't have bird nature, right? Birds can flap their arms and fly. You can't do things that fish can do, because you don't have fish nature. Fish can swim with gills. How many natures does Jesus have? Human nature and divine nature. He took on human nature, and what I want to tell you is, because he did that, he gave you divine nature. He gave you divine nature. And this is part of the reason why the saints are so great. They're already living it. It's not heaven yet. And they're already living. And, you know, I tell you stories about Maximilian Kolbe and Vincent de Paul and these people who do these great things. They're already living their, human, their divine nature right here on earth. And Jesus invites you to do the same thing. And that's what the mystical life of, the, of prayer is all about. It's about becoming alive right now with a nature that's even higher than your human nature. You want to know why saints could do such great things, why they were so greatly good? They were alive with a nature that was above their human nature. And you've already got it. If you've been baptized, you've already got it. Okay? And now is a question of just growing in that. So that's the person of Jesus Christ and why it matters. Okay? Little things down here at the end of your notes, notes for reference, just some quotes. Jesus is true God. Jesus is true man. You can look them up on your own. Okay? And, uh, now, if there's anything that you want to ask, now is the time.